0: The moon has risen it is time to tell stories of the strange and sometimes terrifying a black cat brings us a true story a vampire bat bites into a tall tail an owl flies in a story from another world Greetings, this is Blood Moon Podcast, I'm your Blood Moon host, Andrew Carey. We bring to life stories of the strange and sometimes terrifying. If you have a story or experience you want brought to life, please make your submission at bloodmoonpodcast.com. Your story can be a true paranormal experience or A Tall Tale of Horror. Thank you, listeners, for your support. (laughs) To start the new year you will tell a tall tale which we like to call vampire bat stories it is a classic story by hans christian andersen and it's called the little match girl it was very very cold it snowed and it grew dark. It was the last evening of the year, New Year's Eve. In the cold and dark, a poor little girl with bare head and bare feet was walking through the streets. When she left her own house, she certainly had slippers on, but what could they do? They were very big slippers, and her mother had used them till then, so big were they. The little maid lost them as she slipped across the road, where two carriages were rattling by terribly fast. One slipper was not to be found again, and a boy ran away with the other. He said he could use it for a cradle when he had children of his own. So now the little girl went with her little naked feet which were quite red and blue with the cold. In an old apron she carried a number of matches and a bundle of them in her hand. No one had bought anything of her all day. No one had given her a copper. Hungry and cold she went and drew herself together, poor little thing. The snowflakes fell on her long yellow hair which curled prettily over her neck, but she did not think of that now. And all the window's lights were shining, and there was a glorious smell of roast goose out there in the street. It was no doubt New Year's Eve. Yes, she thought of that. In a corner formed by two houses, one of which was a little farther from the street than the other, She sat down and crept close. She had drawn up her little feet, but she was still colder, and she did not dare to go home, for she had sold no matches, and she had not a single cent. Her father would beat her, and besides, it was cold at home, for they had nothing over them but a roof, through which the wind whistled through straw, and rags stopped the largest holes. Her small hands were quite numb with the cold. Ah, a little match might do her good if she only dared draw one from the bundle and strike it against the wall and warm her fingers at it. She drew one out. How it spluttered and burned. It was a warm, bright flame, like a little candle when she held her hands over it. It was a wonderful little light. It really seemed to the little girl as if she sat before a great polished stove, with bright brass feet and a brass cover. The fire burned so nicely. It warmed her so well, the little girl was just putting out her feet, to warm these two, when out went the flame. The stove was gone. She sat with only the end of the burned match in her hand. She struck another. It burned. It gave a light. And where it shone on the wall, the wall became thin like a veil. And she could see through it into the room where a table stood spread with a white cloth and with china on it and the roast goose smoked gloriously stuffed with apples and dried plums and what was still more splendid to behold the goose hopped down from the dish and waddled along the floor with a knife and fork in its breast straight to the little girl he came then the match went out and only the thick damp cold wall was before her she lighted another then she was sitting under a beautiful christmas tree it was greater and finer than the one she had seen through the glass door at the rich merchants thousands of candles burned upon the green branches and colored pictures like those in the shop windows looked down upon them. The little girl stretched forth, both hands toward them. Then the match went out. The Christmas lights went higher and higher. She saw that now they were stars in the sky. One of them fell and made a long line of fire now, someone is dying, said the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only person who had been good to her, but who was now dead, had said, When off, the star falls, a soul runs up to God. She rubbed another match against the wall. It became bright again, and in the light, there stood the old grandmother, clear and shining mild, and lovely. Grandmother! cried the child. Oh, take me with you. I know you will go when the match is burned out. You will go away like the warm stove, the nice roast goose, and the great glorious Christmas tree. And she hastily rubbed the whole bundle of matches, for she wished to hold her grandmother fast. And the matches burned with such a glow that it became brighter than in the middle of the day. Grandmother had never been so large or so beautiful. She took the little girl up in her arms and both flew in the light and the joy so high, so high. And up there was no cold, no hunger, no care. They were with God. But in the corner of the house sat the little girl with red cheeks and smiling mouth, frozen to death on the last evening of the old year. The new year sun rose upon the little body that sat there with the matches, of which one bundle was burned. She wanted to warm herself, the people said. No one knew what fine things she had seen, and in what glory she had gone in with her grandmother to the new year day. Welcome back. Now an owl flies in with a true story about a hunter squaring off with alien invaders. Donald Shrum, Vincent Alvarez, and Tim Trueblood set up their camp deep in the Tahoe National Forest in California. The trio are employees of Aerojet Corporation, and as a reprieve from their busy lives, they decide to go bow hunting for the weekend. They head out into the wilderness with their equipment, ready to track game. The men agree that if they were to be separated, then they would reconvene at camp in the morning. They move through the forest separately, but close enough in order to communicate with each other. Shrum follows the edge of a ravine, and the only animal he spots is a snake. He comes to a rock wall, and his plan of joining his friends at the other side of the ravine is foiled. As nightfall approaches, Donald Shrum turns back and shortly realizes he won't make it to camp. The terrain is far too treacherous to navigate in the dark, so the hunter decides to climb up a tree in order to spend the night. It is a decision made out of safety concerns, primarily to avoid potential predators that may come lurking. Shrum secures himself in the tree and scans the surrounding area. He spots a white light moving swiftly above the trees to the north. Thinking that it is a rescue helicopter sent by his fellow hunters, Shrum climbs down from the tree and fires off a few flares. He then lights a couple of small fires in an effort to signal the craft. The light zigzags closer and it stops. It hovers in complete silence. Shrum now understands that this is not a helicopter. Elsewhere in the forest, Vincent Alvarez is patrolling the grounds when he sees a light drop down from the sky and silently hovers. His mouth drops when it reveals itself to be an enormous oblong object. Shrum panics and climbs back up into the tree. They won't see me here, he says to himself. He watches the craft perform a semicircle maneuver around the ravine. He can see the light is just a small part of a massive craft. Three panels along the side of the dark fuselage light up. A flash lights up the sky as a smaller craft shoots out from the middle panel. Then... The dome-shaped object lands on a ridge in the distance. In the darkness, Shrum can hear movement on the ground below. A few humanoids crash through the brush and stop near Shrum's tree. They look up at Shrum with their dark, goggle-like eyes. He is now caught in their stare. A strange sensation overcomes the hunter as his mind is being examined telepathically. In the distance, two fiery lights move over the terrain, through the brushes, and over the rocks. They stop at the base of the tree. Shrum's vision adjusts to see that the blazing orbs are the eyes of a robotic being. The metallic figure waves a hand, and the remaining embers from the small fires go out. Fear grips the trapped hunter. A gaseous vapor billows from the robot's large mouth, and Shrum falls into blackness. A short time later, he awakens, but he's still in the tree. It is now apparent to the hunter that he has become the prey and the desire to fight overrides his fear. Shrum secures himself to the branches with his utility belt. He steadies his 60 pound bow, aims it at the metallic figure and fires. Sparks fly from the direct hit. The humanoid beings retreat into the brushes. Shrum scores a couple of direct hits, knocking the robot back. However, the arrows don't seem to cause permanent damage. The attack does repel the other beings and they continue to move back into the wilderness. Shrum has run out of arrows. His mind cycles through defensive options. Remembering that the robotic being put out the small fires, he thinks perhaps fire would be the ultimate weapon against this advanced adversary. Shrum ignites his oil covered cap with a match and drops it to the ground. Again, the beams move back, but surprisingly, the large ship instantly zips away from the scene. The basic element of fire seems to be turning the tide of battle. Throughout the night, the alien beings in the landed craft seem to communicate through sounds and flashing lights. Suddenly, another robotic being arrives. A charge of electrostatic energy passes between the two robots, and then a gas fills the area. The dark-eyed humanoids return and attempt to climb the tree. As Shrum continues to hurl objects at the beings, he can hear coyotes howling in the distance. He mimics the howl, hoping to attract predatory reinforcements. The gas proves to be too much, and the stranded hunter slips into blackness. When Shrum awakens, he sees daylight breaking over the horizon. The cold air brings clarity as well as the memory of the alien beings. He looks down and scans the area. The alien beings, including the ships, are gone. On his way back to camp, Shrum collapses from exhaustion. He is found by Vincent Alvarez and helps him back to camp. Alvarez and Trueblood, can clearly see the shock and fear on Shrum's face as he relays his story. Shrum's experience is confirmed when Alvarez shares that he did witness the massive craft. Later in the day, the three hunters return to the site of the battle. They find some arrows, burnt objects, as well as odd little footprints around the base of the tree. At home, Shrum's wife is shocked to see her husband's condition. Sometime later, two United States Air Force officers meet with Donald Shrum and his wife to discuss the incident. They try to convince Shrum that there was a mundane explanation for his experience, such as military exercises or pranksters. Despite the rejection of his story, the Air Force officers confiscate the arrows and record the incident in the Air Force program known as Project Blue Book. A Black Cat brings us a terrifying account in Silent Satan. Theophilus Rasinger struggles in a battle with supernatural forces that have possessed the body of a 46-year-old woman. He learns how the possession began. The woman's ordeal with demons started when she was 14 years of age. Anna Eklund, or Emma Schmidt, an identity shrouded in mystery, had been cursed by her wretchedly abusive father, Jacob and her aunt, Mina. The curse manifested as internal voices, which became prominent during prayer. Over time, the voices consumed the girl, causing violent rage, especially whenever she dared to enter her church or whenever a priest attempted a blessing. She began a downward spiral into depression and felt she was losing her sanity. To the contrary, several doctors examined Anna and concluded that she did not suffer from a physical or mental illness. Father Razinger is a Capuchin monk in St. Anthony in Marathon, Wisconsin. In 1912, the monk made his first attempt in casting out the demons that played Anna Eklund. He noted that she had a strong aversion to prayer, and displayed an unnatural awareness of objects blessed with holy water. It seemed like the exorcism was successful in liberating Anna from her evil tormentors. Unfortunately, in the summer of 1928, signs of possession had re-emerged. Father Razinger called upon his friend, Father Joseph Steiger, for help. It was decided to bring Anna to St. Joseph's Parish in Erling, Iowa. There, they could conduct the exorcism in private with assistance of parish nuns. Anna arrives at the convent on August 18th. During the first night, Anna detects that her food had been consecrated and she refuses to eat. She begins purring like a cat. By the order of Father Reisinger, Anna is strapped onto an iron bed. The monk begins the rite, and unearthly howls fill the room. Almost immediately, Anna falls into unconsciousness, and the nuns cannot revive her. The prayers continue. And without warning, Anna breaks free of her restraints, leaps through the air, and clings to the wall above the door. Pull her down! Pull her down, she must be brought back to her place upon the bed. With their collective strength, the nuns pull Anna from the wall and hold her down on the iron bed. Again, she is securely fastened, but the howls turn into piercing cries as she contorts her body. Father Reisinger continues the exorcism, but the tormentors remain within the woman. Over the course of the next several days, Father Reisinger, Father Steiger, and the nuns carry on the exorcism. Anna begins convulsing, and although she has rejected food, she vomits mass quantities of foreign objects. Her body now visibly changes into a deformed creature. Her skull swells, the face distorts, and the eyes glow like burning coals as they bulge from their sockets. Reveal yourself! What is your name, demon? Finally, the voices within Anna speak. The voices reveal that four entities reside in the woman. the Beelzebub! Her father cursed us upon her, and under the command of Satan. I want to speak with her father, Jacob. He is with us. A visceral growl emanates from the stricken woman, and her father speaks. She resisted. We cursed the devils inside her to break her chest today. I am Mina, murderer of my four children i am judas what business do you have with anna to bring her despair so that she will commit suicide and hang herself she must get the rope she must go to hell the eyes of the possessed turns to father steiger just Just wait until the end of the the week week. when When friday Friday comes. comes The dire warning comes to fruition when Father Steiger has a near-fatal accident. After visiting an ill parishioner, Father Steiger makes his journey back to the convent when a dark cloud descends on his car. The lack of visibility causes the priest to swerve and crash through the rail guard of a bridge. The car is crushed and hangs over the edge. Fortunately, Father Steiger escapes, with the help of a good Samaritan. Upon returning to the convent, he hears malicious laughter echoing through the halls. The demons gloat. Today, the convent the Point I, I up today. 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 Whatever what you the day today? Oh, uh, uh, yes, it's it's right. Right. Is this true? Yes, what he says is true. My auto is a complete wreck. But he was not able to harm me personally. I, I was did some Father Razinger decides to up the ante. The exorcism continues throughout the evenings as well as the daytime in hopes of driving out the evil that is controlling Anna. On December 23rd, the exhausted holy men and women are able to wear down the demons. Aggression gave way to ungodly moans. Father Reisinger calls upon the Holy Trinity, and flames engulf the room. Both priests see two demons appear in the corner of the room, one with a crown and the other covered in hair. Still unconscious, Anna pops out of bed, and breaks away from the nuns. Pull her down, pull her down, pull her back. Father down. Steiger yells as Razinger continues the right. Depart, ye fiends, begone, Satan, the lion of Judah reigns. Anna drops onto the bed and shrieks fill the room. An eerie silence is broken by the soft voice of Anna. My Jesus, mercy! Praise be to Jesus Christ! (sighs) The blood moon is setting. Thank you to Melissa Chabom, Jane Carey, And Lily Wilkins for providing voiceovers. Special thanks to Jill Wilkins. Please subscribe to the show. And when you have a moment, leave a review. It will help us spread the word. Thank you for listening.